This is available as a podcast and a webinar. What? Hello, Charles. Cody, how are you? Fine in yourself. Good to see you. All right, so we are going to go ahead and get started this afternoon. Welcome. This is our annual civil traffic um, update. And uh, we are recording. If you're not actively asking a question, please mute yourself. Uh, again, if you're on the phone, I'll have to mute you and, and you'll lose the ability to ask questions. So that would be unfortunate. You can turn on your mic and ask questions. You can raise your hand. You can put them in the chat box. We just have a terrific presenter as we do every year for the last few years. Uh, the Honorable Alicia Villa is the presiding hearing officer for the Phoenix Municipal Court. She's been doing that for almost four years now. And prior to that, she was a hearing officer and she's been there since 2007. Uh, she's a former prosecutor. She does do the training for um, uh, for the uh, administrative office of the courts for the Supreme Court. Uh, so it's just really wonderful to have her. We're also joined by another honored guest, uh, the distinguished Paul Julian, who is the judicial education officer for the state of Arizona. And so at this point, I will turn it over to Judge Via. All right, thank you, Judge Adarnetto. Good afternoon, everyone. Um, it is my pleasure to be here with you again this year. Um, although we are, you know, appearing virtually, um, looks like we have a pretty good crowd, about 22 participants. So, um, okay, just wanted to make sure. <laughs> Don't know what that was. Um, so anyway, so as um, as Judge Adarnetto indicated, this is going to be somewhat of a refresher or a review of civil traffic. Um, Judge Adarnetto is also going to go over civil marijuana hearings. Um, and so at the beginning, we're just going to go over some of the basics with regard to civil traffic and the rules, um, and then we'll get into some more specifics with regard to charges. Um, so let's go ahead and get started with the PowerPoint. Um, now, remember that when you are dealing with civil traffic cases, <clears throat> the rules of procedure that you want to follow are the Arizona Rules of Court Procedure for civil traffic, voting, marijuana, and parking and standing violations. Um, the, uh, the Arizona Rules of Criminal Procedure apply only if there is a criminal traffic charge. Um, but if there are no criminal traffic charges and it is solely civil, um, then you have to look to the rules of civil uh, or civil traffic rules. Um, for oh, I am advancing. Are they not advancing on your side? No, and, and we do need someone to mute yourself. Oh, OK, they are. I'm sorry. OK, no problem. So we should be on slide three right now. Is everyone on slide three? Is that what you're seeing? Yes. yes? OK, OK, we're good. All right, so uh, with service of the complaint, um, now normally civil traffic uh, violations are issued by the officer at the scene, um, but occasionally you do have some that are served afterwards. Uh, for example, if there is a, an investigation with regard to a collision, um, or if there's a situation where the officer gets called away from the scene for an emergency situation, um, and then they happen to go back and contact the driver afterwards. Um, so if you have any um, issues where the complaint was not as actually issued to the individual at the traffic stop, um, you will wanna look to the Arizona Rules of Civil Procedure with regard to service. 
Um, also, we do have time limits for filing um, or issuing the complaints, um, and those are contained actually um, in Arizona Revised Statute Title 28. All right, Charlie, did you want to go over the administrative order? I did. Uh, the Supreme Court has issued an administrative order, and this is a, as a result of the pandemic and in order to, to be prepared in the future if another disaster strikes, and also to take advantage of some of the things that we learned during the pandemic that, hey, some of the stuff works virtually uh, and it's actually better for people. Uh, so the Supreme Court ordered uh, all of the courts in the state to have presumptive appearance provisions that each court works through with the presiding superior court judge. Uh, so the justice courts did work through Judge, uh, judge uh, Superior Court presiding judge Joseph Welty, and we did come up with this presumptive appearance, uh, and that says that civil traffic and voting uh, cases are presumed to be done remotely. They can be done in person on a case-by-case -case basis if that becomes necessary, but the presumption is that they be done virtually. Judge Via, I have no doubt that is also the case in Phoenix. That is correct. Okay. Okay. All right. Um, so in civil traffic cases, as I'm sure you all know, so the state is not required to be represented by counsel. In fact, in most times, uh, most of the time in these cases, a prosecutor does not appear and does not represent the state. Um, if a prosecutor will be representing the state, must, uh, notice must be given to the court and to the defendant at least 10 calendar days prior to a hearing. Um, or within 10 days uh, of the notice that the defendant will be represented. Um, now, in my jurisdiction, in Phoenix Municipal Court, our prosecutors do not appear at all, regardless of whether the defendant is represented by counsel or not. Um, but I do know in other courts, um, if the defendant is represented, then the state will appear. So that's all just going to depend on your court and um, the decision of, of your prosecutors. Um, one thing to definitely keep in mind is that even in the situation where you don't have a prosecutor and the officer is the one who is essentially presenting the state's case, um, the officer is still just a witness. They are not the prosecutor or a party, um, which means that they cannot question witnesses, nor can they make legal arguments or objections. Um, and sometimes we do have officers that do try to expand their role. Um, and so we have to make sure that as the judicial officers, we keep them to the role of just being a witness for the state. And in the Maricopa County Justice Courts, the prosecutor will never, never appear. Never appear. Okay, so it's just like our court. Um, now, the defendant must notify the court and the state within 10 calendar days before the hearing um, if they will be represented. Now, that's based on the rules. Um, failure to comply with this rule means that the defendant's right to be represented is waived. So if defense counsel files a notice of appearance on the day of hearing or uh, sooner to the hearing than the 10 calendar days uh, by rule, it's up to you how you wanna handle that notice of appearance. Based on the rule, you can deny um, that, uh, that attorney from being able to represent the um, defendant if they do not timely file their notice, um, or you can continue the case um, or like in my court, because we know that the prosecutors are not going to appear anyway, 
we will still allow the attorney to file a notice, even if it's not within 10 days or even if it's on the day of hearing. Um, so that is going to depend on your uh, rules of procedure and it's up to your discretion. And, and uh, I would agree with Judge Villa that in the justice court, since we never have prosecutors appear, you, I mean, you should instruct the attorney that they sh they were required to do it, but then go ahead and proceed anyway. Right. Okay. All right. Um, now, with regard to failures to appear at hearing, um, if no witness for the state appears, um, then the court shall dismiss the complaint unless there is good cause to continue. Um, now, good cause would be, you know, something like the officer is um, involved in a traffic stop and unable to come to court and they've reported that to the court. Um, or if you know that the officer is on vacation and they've filed a motion to continue, um, something along those lines. But if you have no information as to why the officer is not there, um, then by rule, you should dismiss the complaint. Um, now, if there is a state's witness, if the officer appears and the defendant fails to appear, um, then the court shall enter a default judgment. Now, again, that's unless there's good cause. If the defendant filed a motion to continue or you have information that the, there is good cause uh, that the defendant cannot be there, then, of course, you can uh, continue the matter. Um, one other exception is that defendants who are in active military service cannot have a default judgment against them um, based on federal law. Um, however, it is their responsibility to inform the court that they are in active military duty. Um, so if you don't have information that your defendant is actually in active military service, um, then you can enter a default even if it is a military um, military individual. Now, in the situation where you have no one that appears, neither the defendant nor the officer are present, by reading rules 21 and 22 in conjunction with each other, um, since the state has the burden of proof, then that still results in a dismissal of the complaint. Um, so again, if you don't have any good cause to continue it on either behalf um, and no one is there, then the, the reading the rules in conjunction would say to dismiss the charge or dismiss the complaint. And I saw a question pop up on the chat, not sure. Witnesses cannot technically file motions. They might file a notice of an unavailability. Um, it refers to it as, as a motion. Well, it says uh, a motion in our rules. Um, so semantics really, but yes, they can they can advise you that they are not available. All right. Um, Actually, I think Rule 15 says. Proceed. I'm sorry, I couldn't hear you, Judge. No, you, you can go ahead and proceed. I'll look up the rule, but it, I think it actually does allow a motion to continue for officers. Right. Okay. All right. Um, Pre-hearing discovery. So one of the benefits of our of our uh, hearings is that we don't have to deal with pre-hearing discovery um, because the rule indicates that there is no pre-hearing discovery absent extraordinary circumstances. Um, now that is up to the judge's discretion as to what you consider to be extraordinary circumstances. Um, in my situation, uh, at the times when I've allowed for um, pre-hearing discovery um, has either been when it's been complex collision cases and there's actually uh, police reports that are that are issued, um, or um, we have been lately getting a lot of motions with regard to um, the body camera footage. 
Um, and I'm not sure about how MCSO or DPS is, but um, as far as Phoenix Police, my understanding is, is that they are several months behind um, with regard to fulfilling requests for body camera footage. And so individuals um, are turning to the court to ask us uh, to either issue a subpoena or it, to continue the case for several months so that they can get the body camera footage. Um, so we have uh, allowed continuances, um, but we've also tried to have the individuals contact um, the records department at PD. Um, we've even um, sent people upstairs to the prosecutor's office to see if there's any way that they can expedite those requests. Um, and sometimes we have been successful with that, but um, that is my understanding is just based on the sheer number of requests that we're get that they are getting for these body camera um, videos um, that they are several, several months behind. I've heard four to six months uh, behind on, on fulfilling those. Um, immediately before the hearing, both parties um, shall produce for inspection any exhibits or recorded statements for inspection. So they are supposed to exchange exhibits and discovery prior to the hearing beginning. Um, now, most defendants are not familiar with the rules. Most defendants in these cases are representing themselves. Um, so I always begin by asking anyone if they have any exhibits and I, I let them know that they need to show them to the other side, whether it's the officer or the defendant, um, so that they can see each other's exhibits before we get started. Um, a, a rule again to, to keep in mind is uh, rule 13.B or 13B does require that um, the officer show the defendant their notes during the hearing if they request it. I have had officers who have declined to do this, um, and I have to specify to them that the rule requires that they show the notes to the defendant. Um, most of the time when this has happened, it's because the officer has said some not very kind things about the defendant in their notes, and that's why they didn't want to show them. Um, but they should be aware of the fact that anything that they, that they bring to court, um, if they are using them as notes, then the defendant has a right to see them. All right. Um, now, the order of proceedings follows a standard order of proceedings in our cases. Um, so state's case in chief, followed by the defendant's case in chief, uh, state's rebuttal, defendant's sir rebuttal, argument of the parties, and then the ruling by the court. Um, now, remember that in the state's case in chief, the defendant can question the witnesses. They can question the officer. However, in the defendant's case in chief, the officer cannot question the defendant. The only person who can uh, question the defendant, unless there is a prosecutor present, would be the court. Um, argument of parties, I very rarely add, uh, allow that um, because, again, the officer is not a party, so the officer cannot make any closing arguments. And defendants, since they're pro per, usually don't know how to make a closing argument. They usually just end up um, repeating their testimony. Um, so I don't usually find it uh, efficient to ask if they want to make a final argument unless there's an attorney present. Um, yes, Judge Otternetto. You have your hand up. I had my hand up and did not have my microphone on. We have a couple of questions piling up now. Uh, okay. So uh, the first one is the failure to the officer fails to appear. Dismiss with or without prejudice? 
Um, we always do it without prejudice. That's just the default in my court. Um, I don't know how you how you do it in the justice court. And I mean, it, it, even if it's done without prejudice, the likelihood of it being refiled is probably uh, something close to zero. So right. I, I think either way would be fine. And then the other question is with respect to body cam footage, can you turn that request down because what is it going to show that's relevant? It, it may show the attitude of the officer, but my understanding is most of the body cam isn't turned on until after the violation. Right. And so um, in in those cases, when we have individuals who are specifically requesting the body cam footage, I ask them why it is that they want the body camera footage. And then I also ask the officer if the body cam footage happens to show the violation or does it just show the contact afterwards? Um, I have had situations where the officers did happen to have their body cameras on and actually um, viewed the violation when it occurred. Um, so it, it's gonna depend on a case by case basis, depending on what, what that particular footage shows. Mike? Yeah, I just want to make a note that the judge is spot on about that. The other thing that happens is when the defendant gets the body cam footage sent to them, it's it's almost always redacted. Mm -hmm. And I have people getting upset about that. So just a couple of things to think about when we're on the bench on that subject. And almost universally, she's right. It's taken pretty much everybody in the valley about uh, somewhere between three and four months now on body camera footage. Thank you, Judge. Okay, all right, so we'll go on to the next slide. Um, now, as Judge Adrenato indicated, um, many of the um, courts have now gone to conducting virtual hearings um, based on the, the administrative order and based on um, what we learned during the pandemic. Um, with regard to the rules for civil traffic, it does permit parties, um, attorneys, and or witnesses to appear by audiovisual or interactive means. Um, and this, this provision has actually pre- uh, dated um, the administrative order and the pandemic. We've had this in our rules for years uh, where we could have people appear by audiovisual means. Um, the request does have to be made at least 14 calendar days prior to the hearing date. Now that is if the individual is requesting to appear, not if the court is, uh, is requiring or, or asking the person to appear virtually. Um, the court again may require the requesting party to pay costs for the hearing or for the defendant to post bond uh, for the possible fine if a fine is imposed. Um, the rule for the audiovisual appearances specifically is rule 10.1. Um, and some of the things that it does require, uh, which is, is a little difficult for some of the, co of the um, individuals um, and even some courts to adhere to, is the fact that everyone must be able to be seen and heard um, all at the same time. So you do have to use a format like what we're using today, using uh, Zoom or Teams. Um, in City of Phoenix, we use WebEx uh, because you do have to make sure that everyone can be seen and heard. Um, you also do have to make sure that the audio portion is captured accurately on your official record. Um, so you have to make sure that somehow your FTR uh, picks up the, the audio portion of the hearing. The video does not have to be recorded. Um, and you also do have to have a fax or email available in order to transmit exhibits, 
um, and to provide the defendant with their notice of right to appeal if they are found responsible. Um, so this is just a, a question. Yes, we do have a question. What are the costs for the hearing? You know, that's based on court by court. We've never charged anyone even prior to us, um, have, you know, prior to the administrative order. We never charged anyone for it. Um, I think that provision is just there for courts that have to set up um, the, you know, purchase equipment and set this up. But um, we previously used to ask people to post a bond if they were going to appear um, by audiovisual or by phone, um, but we no longer do that. And I don't know what you do in JP court. That would be up to each court, but uh, I don't think there's really any costs involved on the part mm -hmm. of the courts. Okay. <laughs> yes, Judge Adonetto, it looks like your, your microphone has a little bit of a delay when you first turn it on. So someone just noticed that. Thank you. Sure. All right, so um, this is a picture of what my courtroom looks like um, when we started doing our virtual hearings. Um, as you can see from the, the masks on myself and my bailiff, uh, this was during the height of the pandemic. So even though he and I were the only two in the actual courtroom because we were in the proximity uh, within six feet of each other, um, we had to wear masks even while I was on camera. Um, but uh, this is how we started. Um, this is how we outfitted the courtroom with a very large uh, monitor within the courtroom that had a camera um, so that that way I could be seen and the very large monitor allowed me to be able to see the defendant, um, the officer, the witness. And then we also um, had the, the exhibits, if there were any exhibits um, that are, could all be seen at the same time. So um, we still have this same format today. That's what we still use same equipment. Oops. Um, so as I said, we we have been using the WebEx flat platform to use uh, to do our civil traffic hearings. Um, currently, we are doing civil traffic and parking cases only by uh, video. We have not been able to do any accident cases by video because the prosecutor's office does not get email addresses from witnesses when they're involved in accidents. Um, those are not part of the accident exchange form. And so there's no way for us to send the invite to the witnesses um, to let them know to appear by video. So we haven't been able to work out that um, that little situation. So we haven't been able to do any collision cases by video. Um, we also do uh, give defendants the option of opting out of video hearings. Um, we do have some people who, you know, are just not technologically savvy or just not comfortable with appearing in the video format. Um, so we do let people know that if they do not want to have a video hearing, they can request to have a hearing in person. So they're not required to appear by video. Um, and we do advise the defendants and the officers if they are going to have a video hearing um, to submit their exhibits by email. This is just for the ease of my staff so that that way they can have everything preloaded um, and to make sure that if they're, you know, that everything is in a readable format um, so that we can use it for the hearing. And that's been working out very well for us because that way we don't have, you know, the delay of waiting for an email or waiting for something to upload or you get it and it's upside down um, or it's a video that you can't play, all of those different things. Um, and then we do provide the post-court documents, um, instructions to pay by email, as well as the notice of appearance. Um, my bailiffs send those to defendants um, after the hearing um, by email. 
Um, the civil traffic rules also allow for telephonic appearances, and that's under Rule 10.1D. Um, again, this is based on the, the request of the defendant. Um, the rule does specifically indicate that any defenses based on lack of in-court identification are waived. Um, and again, if you have a defendant who is appearing by phone, um, you do have to make sure that a quality record is maintained. So you have to make sure that your recording, uh, that your FTR is picking up the defendant. Um, additionally, we do have what are called documentary hearings um, in civil traffic, which are explained in Rule 10.2. Um, now, for the documentary hearings, a defendant must request a documentary hearing in writing um, and must show that they have a substantial hardship as to why they cannot appear personally in court. Um, this then allows them to file a written statement in lieu of providing live testimony. Um, it also does allow that if the defendant is awarded a documentary hearing that the state witness may also submit a written statement. Um, so you can completely have both sides just submitting documents for you. Um, both sides may also uh, submit exhibits for the court to consider as well. Um, now, specifically with the documentary hearings, um, defendants should be advised that they do waive um, the following rights. Um, and these actually are um, listed in the rule um, and there is uh, an approved form included in Rule 37 um, that you can incorporate if you do um, award a documentary hearing. Um, you can send that form to the defendant. That way they know exactly what rights they are waiving and uh, if they decide to go through with a documentary hearing. Um, additionally, based on the rule, the appeal time for these cases is extended to 21 days. Um, normally, the uh, appeal time for a civil traffic matter is 14 days from the date of hearing. All right, moving on to testimony. Um, for civil traffic cases, all, all testimony must be given under oath. Um, defendants who cite a religious objection to swearing to tell the truth um, can be asked to affirm that they are going to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. Um, now, this is all based on, style, on, on your style and, and how you choose to do it. Um, you can swear in all witnesses as a group at the beginning of the hearing. Um, or you can uh, swear in each witness individually prior to his or her testimony. That's just going to be completely up to you. Um, personally, I like to swear in all of the witnesses at the beginning. Um, the reason for that is because, number one, I make sure that uh, that makes sure that I don't forget anyone. Um, but also very often, again, remember, these mostly are pro per individuals. Um, and so many times people will just start giving you their testimony. Um, right when you ask them if if they have any questions for the officer or just any time that you ask them something, they'll just all of a sudden start giving you their testimony. Um, so that's why I like to do it just all at the beginning and get it out of the way. But it's completely up to you. Um, now, one of the questions I always get asked in any of these, uh, and, and usually it's Paul that asks this question, <laughs> what do you do if you realize that during the hearing you forgot to administer the oath? Um, well, if you are still in the middle of the hearing, if you have the, the witnesses there, um, you can go back and you can correct. So you can swear everyone in at that time and you can say, do you swear or affirm that all the testimony you have given in this matter up to this point has been the truth, the whole truth and nothing but the truth. Now, if it's after the hearing has ended and everyone is gone and you don't have those witnesses there, then you're stuck. There's nothing you can do. All you can do is hope that nobody appeals uh, because if they do, you will be reversed. <laughs> All right, Judge Adonetto. 
Yeah, I was going to say the only thing worse than uh, forgetting to swear witnesses in beforehand is to not know whether or not you swore them in beforehand, because then your choice is either to swear them in again and look like an idiot or ask, did I swear you in, which doesn't look much better, so. Right. This is also a very good pointer to make very good, uh, to have a very good working relationship with your bailiff because your bailiffs will be the one who can discreetly pass you a note or say, judge, are you going to swear the witness in? <laughs> um, so it's always good to have a good working relationship with your bailiff because they'll, they're will they noting that for the record. Um, so they will let you know whether you've forgotten to, uh, to swear the witness in or not. Um, all right. Questions. Um, hearing officers, since we are the, uh, just like with any other trial to the bench, um, we are the triers of fact. Um, so we have the ability to call and examine witnesses. Um, and the rule says here, including the defendant. Um, so we can ask questions of any witnesses. Um, now, when you're asking questions, you want to remain neutral and you want to avoid the appearance of representing either side. So you want to make sure that you stay away from um, cross-examining witnesses or seeming like you're trying to uh, represent one side or the other. Really, your questions should be kept to clarifying questions, um, just things that help you, you know, um, clarify the facts or if there's something that was that's just not clear in your mind, um, things like that, something that's helpful in you making your decision. Um, but if you find that you're really, you know, asking a lot of questions of somebody, then that means either the the other side did not do a very good job of explaining their side, um, or you're you're crossing that line into actually being an advocate as opposed to just asking neutral questions. Okay. All right. Um, use of interpreters. Uh, so it is a due process right to have an interpreter provided if it, is, if it has been requested, um, and it is reversible error if an interpreter is not provided. Um, per Arizona Supreme Court order, our interpreters must be certified. Um, if, the, uh, if you're not able to obtain a certified interpreter, whether because there's not a, a certified interpreter available for that language, if it's a, a lesser used language, um, or there's just not somebody available in your area for your court, um, then you do still have to give preference to what they call credentialed interpreters. Um, so the interpreters have, um, a, I believe it's a three or four tier process that they go through in the state of Arizona to become certified. Um, and I believe once they're in tier two, that's when they are considered to be credentialed. Um, judges also cannot conduct proceedings in any language other than English, so your official record must be in English. Um, and I recommend placing the interpreters under oath, particularly if you're using an interpreter who's not um, a regular interpreter in your court. Um, this is just because it just kind of reminds the interpreter of what their duty is, um, the fact that they are, are giving an interpretation of all of the words spoken in the hearing to the best of their training and ability. Um, there's nothing worse than having a situation where you're talking and talking and talking and the interpreter is sitting there completely quiet because they don't know when they're supposed to speak. 
So that's why I like to make sure that for the interpreters who are not here very often, or maybe they're a new interpreter, um, or like I said, they're for those lesser used languages, that they just understand that it's their job to make sure that the person uh, or that the um, that all of the words that are being spoken are being translated for that individual. Um, let's see. OK, we have a question here. Let me go to that. If an interpreter has not been requested, but it seems that the defendant is not understanding the proceeding, would it be the best practice to continue and get an interpreter, even if the defendant says he or she doesn't need one? Um, I would say yes. Um, I do know of a situation that occurred here in our court um, where the judge specifically asked the individual if they needed an interpreter. The individual said no. They went through the whole hearing. Defendant was found responsible. Then on appeal, he hired an attorney, and that was the issue that the attorney raised, was that the defendant did not understand the proceedings. And the su Supreme Court actually did uh, reverse the decision and ordered a new hearing specifically with an interpreter, um, because based on what they heard in the record, they felt that the defendant did not understand what was going on. So um, I would say as a best practice, if you just get that, that feeling that somebody is not understanding, by all means, go on the safer route and provide an interpreter. Um, so we do have some unique interpreter situations that occur. Um, and again, the reason that these are unique is, uh, or that this happens specifically in civil traffic cases is because we don't have the benefit many times of having an attorney that is representing the defendant. It is the defendant on their own. Um, so when you have hearing impaired individuals, um, just remember that there are several different um, layers to interpreters for hearing imp uh, impaired individuals. There are individuals who uh, speak sign language or who, who will use sign language. Um, however, there are some people who are not versed in sign language. Um, and so then for them, there may be lip readers um, or you may have to use relay, which is where you have an individual that comes in um, and actually types all of the words that are being spoken. Um, and then the individual is able to type their responses back. Um, when you have uncommon or exotic languages, um, you have to try and do the best you can to obtain an interpreter for that language or for that dialect. Um, I know that our office or our court has a, a wonderful uh, court interpreter's office where they will go above and beyond to try and find um, interpreters for these uncommon languages. And I believe the, the JP courts do have um, those same resources as well. Um, if you're unable to determine the defendant's language um, or unable to locate an interpreter for them, um, that is a situation where you might have to use a little bit more finesse. Um, if you're unable to determine the defendant's language, at least try to determine what country they're from. Um, there is a, uh, a little helpful sheet that I believe AOC has um, in their materials uh, that says, uh, it says something, uh, it's like, what language do you speak? And it has it translated into several different languages. It just has that that line translated into a bunch of different languages. Um, if you have that um, that sheet available, then hopefully you can um, you can find out the language that the person speaks. Um, we've had a, a couple of situations where we had individuals. Um, the one that comes to mind is we had some people from Haiti um, who speak a, a, a certain dialect of Creole. 
Um, and we couldn't find an interpreter that spoke that, but they said they also could speak French or they at least could get by with French. And we could definitely find a French interpreter. And so we were able to get by with that. Um, but once we received notice from our court interpreter's office that they've been unable to locate an interpreter and they've exhausted all of their means, um, because these are civil traffic cases, we will dismiss uh, the, the, the case based on the fact that we cannot locate an interpreter. Um, now, obviously, with criminal cases, you know, that doesn't happen. Um, and I don't know what your policy is um, with regard to the JP courts, um, but that is is what we do in our court if it, if we've received that determination from our court interpreter's office. Um, one of the very helpful things now is that we can use the language line. Um, and so we have not had that situation occur in many, many, many years where they said we absolutely cannot find an interpreter. Um, the language line is very useful. Uh, you all of the um, all of the interpreters who are used on the language line are uh, presumed to be uh, credentialed or certified, so you don't have to worry about any issues with that. Um, but that that is another resource that is available. Um, you also want to make sure that you are sensitive to cultural issues. Um, we've had some issues come up where you know individuals uh, did not did not trust the um, the interpretation of the of the interpreter that was used. Um, or did not, uh, you know, maybe it was a different dialect or something like that. Um, again, another um, example that comes to mind is we had an Arabic speaking individual. Uh, he was a male and the interpreter was a female and he absolutely would not allow a female to, as he said, speak for him. And it was a huge cultural issue. I mean, he would not sit next to her. He wouldn't even look at her. So at that point, I, I, you know, because I knew we could find another male and Arabic interpreter, I continued the case and I specifically asked our interpreter uh, coordinator to get a male Arabic speaker. Um, and then we were able to do the case the next time. But, you know, it is a cultural issue. And so we should be sensitive to that. Um, also, you can question the competency or the accuracy of the interpretation. Um, so like I said, when you have that situation where you're talking and talking and talking and the interpreter is saying nothing, try to correct it. Um, let the interpreter know that they need to make sure that they are interpreting everything. Um, but if you feel that the interpreter is just not doing a proficient job, you can um, essentially declare a mistrial. Um, and reorder a, a new hearing and ask for another interpreter um, the next time. Not sure if we have some more questions. Okay, no, it looks like it's the same ones. Okay, all right. Um, and then just a, a, a just a little bit on dealing with difficult people. Um, you know, many times in civil traffic matters, um, we have individuals who are very, very upset. Um, based on what occurred with the officer, you know, the interaction that they had at the scene. Um, and sometimes, again, because individuals do not have the filter of having an attorney representing them or, you know, have anyone else that's essentially there to let them know what decorum is proper and what isn't, um, it's, it's the court's job to take care of that. Um, but it's always important for us to remain calm and to set the scene. Um, if someone is upset and angry and you allow it to make you upset or angry, that's only going to aggravate the situation. 
Um, and particularly if you have an individual who's upset with the system and they feel that, you know, the officers cited them improperly and the whole system is against them. If the court starts, you know, along those same lines, it's only going to feed into their their misbelief um, that the whole system is unfair and the whole process is unfair. So remain calm. Try to keep everyone calm. Um, if all else fails, take a recess, kind of let tempers kind of die down a little bit um, and then return and con continue the proceeding. Um, but you want to always make sure that you keep the proceedings as controlled and as civil as possible. Um, and you always want to make sure that you keep a good, clear record. Um, when people are yelling over each other or talking over each other, there can't be a clear record. And so that's what I like to let people know a lot of times when I have people. And, and sometimes it's the officers as well. The officers will engage back and forth with the individuals. And I have to remind them that the proceedings are being recorded and we can't keep a clear record if people are going to talk over each other. So, you know, one person talk at a time. It's almost like controlling a classroom in a way, um, but that's sometimes that's what we got to do. All right, um, burden of proof in our cases is a preponderance of the evidence. Oops, sorry, don't didn't mean to go that. Uh, preponderance of the evidence, um, which as we, you know, we typically will describe that for individuals that it's more likely than not. Um, or a lot of people like to use the the uh, example of the scales of justice, and it's just one side tips ever so slightly more than the other. That is the side that wins. Um, elements that the state must establish for every case. Um, every case they do have to establish the date, time, and location um, that it is within the jurisdiction of your court, and they do have to have identification of the defendant. Um, now, the identification actually has two elements. They have to show that they identified the individual at the scene or somehow um, how, how they knew to put the citation in that particular individual's name. And then they also have to do the in-court identification, indicating that that person who is in court um, or who is appearing um, either virtually or, or whatever uh, is the same individual that they cited. Um, and then each each violation will have its own specific elements um, depending on that violation. Um, now, if the state fails to prove the elements of the offense by a preponderance of the evidence, then you must find the defendant not responsible. So what do you do if the state misses uh, an element? Um, let's say, for example, in a speeding charge, the officer does not tell you what the posted speed limit is. Do you prompt the state's witness? Well, again, that's where you have to look at whether or not you go into the, you step into the role of being an advocate and trying to help one side or the other, or are you a neutral party who is making your decision based on the evidence that you are given? In that situation, if the officer did not tell me what the posted speed limit was, I would not prompt the officer specifically and, and let them know that they are missing that element. I always make sure at the end of everyone's testimony, I ask a clarifying question uh, or just a general question. Is there anything else that you would like to add? If the officer doesn't understand or doesn't notice that they missed that, that's just going to be something that they are, are not going to prevail on. You know, hopefully they'll learn for the next time. Um, when I when I give my decision, when I make my ruling, I always make sure to let the parties know why I'm making my ruling. Um, so that way it's clear for everyone. Um, but I would not specifically prompt the state's witness for that. 
Um, now, when you have a defendant who is giving their testimony, um, let's say they fail to address one of the charges. Um, so you have an individual who uh, is cited with speeding, driving without a license, no registration or expired registration and no insurance. And they talk to you about the speeding and they talk to you about the license, but they never say anything at all about the vehicle or the registration or the insurance. Um, now, in that case, I, I would ask the defendant because, again, you are dealing with a pro per. You are dealing with someone who's not familiar with the system, who's never been trained on how to testify, and who's probably, at many times, this is their first experience in court. So they might forget that they have to say something. Um, so, again, I would just do it in very general terms um, and say, is there anything you would like to say about the other charges? And then hopefully they will have their registration or their insurance or they'll have something to say about those. Evidence. All right, so first of all, we'll start with relevance. Um, relevance, as we know, the legal definition is whether testimony um, or evidence has some probative value to a material issue at hand. Um, in our cases, we are the ones who determine whether, uh, whether evidence is relevant or not. Um, there is no objection that's necessary since the judge is the one who's controlling the um, the, the proceeding. Um, so if a witness or defendant is giving testimony that is ir irrelevant, you can stop them and advise them that that testimony is not relevant, will not be considered, and, is, and they can move on to something else. Um, again, sometimes with individuals, they will go on to things, you know, things that happened to them years before, or the last time I got stopped for a ticket, the officer didn't do this or did this, um, and that's not really relevant in this case. Uh, so you can stop them and let them know that. Um, so some of the hypotheticals that we, we just kind of thought of when we were preparing this, um, let's say someone uh, is giving testimony about another person that they knew who received a warning for this same type of violation instead of a citation. Not going to be relevant. The officers have the discretion to give warnings or give citations. So the fact that somebody else got a warning, it's not going to be relevant as to whether or not this particular violation occurred. Um, photographs depicting how signs are posted in a different state or a different foreign country not going to be relevant because what applies in Arizona is what the requirements are in the state of Arizona. Um, this one I get quite a uh, quite a bit. Um, defendants will offer either their MVD record or offer the testimony that they've been driving for 20 years and they've never gotten a ticket before. Um, well, then I would say that person's probably lucky <laughs> if they've been driving for 20 or 30 years and never got a ticket. Uh, but it really, again, has no bearing or no relevance onto whether or not they committed this particular violation. Um, looking at it from the state side, uh, you can have sometimes officers who will give testimony about the incident occurring in a high crime area. Um, again, not really going to be relevant unless the officer is basically trying to say why they were there in that area or what was it that caused them to notice the defendant um, and, and notice the violation. Uh, but other than that, it doesn't really matter what kind of area they were in. Um, and then the recording of the defendant and, uh, defendant and officer's conversation. Um, as, as the judge mentioned earlier here when we were talking about body camera footage, uh, many times the body camera footage is just the interaction between the officer and the defendant after they've already been stopped. And a lot of times um, either officers or defendants want to show that footage just to show the demeanor 
of the other individual. Um, I always tell defendants that, you know, I don't have any supervisory authority over the officers, so I can't say anything with regard to their behavior. That is something for the police department to take care of. So if they want to make a complaint about the officer's demeanor or their attitude or how they spoke to them, they have to go through the police department for that. I have no authority with regard to that. Um, now, admissibility. Um, anything that is relevant in civil traffic cases um, is admissible, uh, except for privileged communications. Um, and the privileged communications are your, your standard privilege, marital privilege, attorney, client, doctor, patient, et cetera. Um, so one of the biggest things that, that is um, allowed in our cases is hearsay. Um, so even an out-of-court statement offered by a witness who's not there, someone can testify to it if they have knowledge of it. Um, so hearsay is admissible in our, in our proceedings. Um, however, you can also consider the weight that the statement should be given. Um, and so, you know, sometimes I will have individuals who will come in and they will bring a written statement from a witness um, who isn't there to provide testimony and who I really don't know what their motive was in providing this statement. Um, in accident cases, for example, if we have someone who writes a written statement and they didn't stay there at the scene, they didn't provide a statement to the officer, I'm going to want to know why. Now, if it's a person who says, I was on my way to work and I couldn't stay to wait for the officer, so here is my statement, okay, then that that's reasonable. But if I don't know who this person was and whether or not they even saw the collision, I'm probably not going to assess that much weight to that statement. All right. Um, some foundational examples. So when you have an investigating officer who gives an opinion on how a collision occurred but didn't witness the collision, um, this happens uh, in the majority of collision cases. Most of the time, officers are not there to witness the collision. Collision happens. Someone calls calls 911 or calls the police. The officers arrive afterwards and they talk to everyone there at the scene and then they determine how the collision occurred. So um, one of the, the foundational things that you'll want to consider is what kind of training and experience does the officer have in accident investigation? Um, most of the times the officers will give you this in their testimony, um, but it's also it also applies to any other witnesses who might um, who might be testifying. Um, I've had defendants who've actually hired um, at what they call expert witnesses, um, either private investigators, retired officers, things like that um, who have come in to give their opinion on how the collision occurred. And so again, that's what you want to consider is what kind of training and experience does that witness have? Um, when you have a photograph of uh, the vehicle or the roadway, um, but it's taken one week after the incident or it's taken in preparation for court, so it's taken months after the incident, um, you can consider the photograph if it still fairly and accurately shows the way that the vehicle or the roadway looked on the date of the collision uh, or on the date of the incident. Um, but if it's modifications have been made or things don't look the same, then you don't have to consider that photograph as an exhibit. Um, and one of the other things we always get asked about or that the officers always get asked about is um, with on speeding cases is the calibration of their radar unit. Um, officers should be able to provide testimony regarding when uh, the last when the calibration was checked, um, how often it's checked, 
um, they should be able to provide you that information um, if if they are a certified radar operator. All right, so in this day and age, we've been getting a lot of electronic evidence. Um, everybody has a cell phone, and so it's very easy for people to take pictures or videos from their cell phone. Um, but we've also received things, um, particularly in accident cases like security camera footage um, or, again, the officer's body camera or dash cam footage. Um, so according to Rule 29B, all exhibits offered at the hearing, whether they're admitted or not, are part of the appellate record. Um, so it's very, very important to make sure that everything offered as an exhibit can be kept in a format um, that can be kept with the court file, and that's in case of an appeal. So if somebody comes in and they're showing you some footage or some photos on their camera, on their cell phone, you have to make sure that that can be preserved somehow. So either they have to email a copy of that picture to you or download it somehow, or they have to have it on a disk or a flash drive. You need to have some sort of, of method of preserving and saving that um, exhibit. If not, if you just look at what they have on their phone, there's no way for you to preserve that for the record. And so if the case is appealed, the appellate court is not going to be able to see what you saw. So just make sure that you do recall that. And if you have someone who's trying to show you something on their phone and they're just trying to hold it up for you to look at, you have to, to, to state on the record, you know, I'm, I'm sorry, Mr. Julian, I know that you have something on your phone. However, there's no way for me to save it. So I can't look at your at your picture on your phone. Um, this is another reason why you want to make sure that people let you know about exhibits prior to the hearing beginning. Um, I always ask individuals if they have any exhibits that they want to show for the hearing. And if all they do is pick up their phone and show it to me, then I have to have a conversation with them about what kind of exhibits they have and whether or not they can um, submit that to us by email or something like that. If they can't, then either they're going to have to proceed without it um, or we might have to continue the case so that they can provide that in a in a manner that we can save. Sorry to make you the example, Paul, but you were right there on the top of my screen. <laughs> All right, and then at the conclusion of the hearing, um, you want to make sure that you let the parties know that the, the hearing is closed and that there will be no more testimony or evidence that will be heard. Um, sometimes when you're in the middle of making your decision, people will say, oh, judge, I wanted to add something else. Um, so that's, again, one of the reasons why I always make sure I ask anyone, everyone at the end of their testimony, is there anything else you want to add? Um, because once it's my turn to talk and make my decision, I'm not going to take any additional testimony. Um, you want to check with your bailiff and your clerk to make sure that all the exhibits that were um, that were offered or submitted have either been marked and admitted or that you uh, indicated that they were not going to be admitted. Um, when you are giving your ruling, you want to make sure that you um, address your findings of fact um, and also your conclusions of law. So not only is this you explaining this to the parties as to why you've made your decision on each of the charges, um, but also it's you explaining to the appellate court should that case get appealed. Um, if you don't give an, your, your rationale for your decision, there's really nothing that the appellate court can can do to um, to kind of uh, go into your mind as to what you were thinking or why you made the decision that you did. OK, and I saw a question pop up, so let's see. 
If a defendant wants to show something like cell phone footage, but there is no way to preserve it and you advise them of that and don't look at it, how do we comply with the rule that everything offered must be preserved? Okay. Well, if they're mentioning that they have evidence on their phone, um, but they're not actually saying, they're, they're not marking it as evidence, it's not really offered. So at that point, they're just saying they have something. Um, and that's why I said you have to, it, it's best to take care of that prior to the hearing beginning. Um, so that way you could have that discussion as to whether or not they're, they want to proceed without it, or if they are saying that this is necessary for their case and they really, really need it, then they need to be able to provide it in a format that can be saved. Um, so what, what the rule refers to is that, let's say somebody gives me a photograph of something and I say, um, well, thank you for the photograph. However, this photograph is dated um, from 2019, so I don't believe that it's relevant. And they say, well, no, Judge, I think that is relevant. And I deny their their admit, I deny that admission. Um, that photograph should still be preserved for appeals purposes. Because if they raise on appeal that part of the reason that they disagree with my decision is because I denied that photograph being admitted, um, then the appeals court should be able to address that. So that's the basis for the rule. Okay, and looks like we have a hand up, Judge Branham. Judge, is, is it okay if, if we explain to them that they, they haven't complied with the rules, but it will allow them to explain what it is they have on their phone that they think we need to understand? Would that be acceptable? Yes, that is completely acceptable. And sometimes I do that um, when we have individuals that say, you know, well, I have this on my phone and I'd really like to show it to you, but I don't want to come back, um, you know, so can I just tell you what this is? And, and I let them just explain what it shows on their phone. Thank you. Sure. Sure. All right. So if you find a person responsible, you want to make sure that you enter the judgment and impose, excuse me, impose the appropriate fine. Um, unless a mandatory fine is required, the fine amount can be uh, any amount up to the statutory maximum, which is $250 plus surcharges and fees. Um, if, uh, or I'm sorry, you are required to provide notice of right to appeal, which is usually that's standard on your on your judgment forms. Um, and you also have to report the finding to the, to the Motor Vehicle Division within 10 days. Um, again, that's usually standard in our courts. It's done by the, by the staff, so we don't normally have to worry about that. Um, if you enter a not responsible finding, um, just make sure that if they did um, put any deposit or any bond down, um, that you do refund that if they were found not responsible. Um, and again, your staff will usually advise you of that. Okay, um, a couple of legal points. Um, dismissal of charges, we only have the authority to dismiss charges when the statute gives us that authority. So specifically with um, insurance violations, we can dismiss uh, subsection B and subsection C charges if the individual presents valid proof of insurance uh, that covers the vehicle or the driver for the data violation. Um, for no driver's license in possession, um, you can dismiss that charge if the person presents proof of a valid driver's license um, that was valid on the data violation. Um, so those essentially are the situations where people just didn't have your doc their documents with them or didn't have them in the vehicle at the time. 
Um, driving on a suspended license. Um, if the person provides proof of reinstatement, um, then that charge can be dismissed. And then the new one that the legislature added a couple of years ago is for um, no current registration or expired registration. Um, if they do provide proof that the vehicle is now registered, uh, then that charge uh, shall be dismissed as well. Um, now, specifically with regard to speed complaints, um, ARS 28707 requires that the complaints specify the alleged speed and the maximum speed applicable um, all, and also have identification, date, time, and location. Um, now, the ID, date, time, and location, I think that was more in response to the photo radar tickets um, because that was essentially uh, part of the reason that this, this statute was um, added or modified. Um, but it's very, very important, again, to notice the, that the alleged speed and the maximum speed have to be listed on the citation. Um, the reason for that is so that that way the defendant can prepare uh, their defense. They have to know what they're alleged to have been going so that that way they know whether to fight it or not. Um, now, when this says speed complaints, that means for violations when they are alleged to be traveling at a speed uh, at a certain speed or a speed, speed greater than reasonable or prudent or a speed that was too low for the conditions. Um, if the person is cited with failure to control speed to avoid a collision, that does not require that uh, uh, that an alleged speed be listed um, because there'd be no way for the officer to be able to do that, right? How would they estimate how fast somebody was going if they didn't see the collision and if it was uh, minor damage or if the you know they can't really determine what the speed was? Um, so remember that that particular charge is not a speed complaint. That is for failure to control. So it's not required in that particular um, in that particular charge. Um, now, I've been asked that question by a couple of judges. Uh, I've gotten emails on that um, within, you know, a couple of times within the past couple of years. Um, and there's also been defense attorneys, I understand, who've been raising this as a defense um, in court. So just make sure that there is a distinction and, and that you know the distinction between the 28701A for speed greater than reasonable or prudent and the 28701A charge for failure to control. Okay. All right, I don't see any hands raised on that, so good. Okay, and then um, Charlie, do you wanna do this one regarding the cell phone use? Cause I need to take a drink really quick. <laughs> Thanks. So a, a couple of years ago, the legislature, uh, actually it was more than a couple of years ago because they actually put a huge lag period in there before it went into effect. Some of the cities were doing this beforehand, but you know one of, one of the biggest problems we have is distracted driving. Uh, so the legislature added 28-914A, operating a vehicle while using a wireless communication device and that does prohibit driving while holding or physically supporting an electronic device. You cannot be writing, reading, or sending text or data. It does allow for hands-free operation. So um, if, if you've got hands-free operation, that's what you should be doing. It does not apply if the vehicle is stopped at a red light or a stop sign. And there are emergency exceptions. So if you are using that to call 911 because you're about to be in an accident, then you're probably okay. And so uh, the DPS did do this wonderful, cute little graph 
about that. And and actually, Judge Via, I was going to pop this question to you because we, we, we put up 28-914A, but 28-914E says the department shall post a sign at each point at which an interstate highway or United States highway enters into the state that informs an operator that of the following. So when you have the really crafty attorney who thinks he's Perry Mason and asks the officer, did you drive the entire circumference of the state to check every port of entry to see whether there is a sign that says cell phone use prohibited, what do you say? I actually have not had any attorneys try that. You're kidding. No, <laughs> no, really? No, I have not. I have okay, not. Well, you but... just heard it for the first time. What do you do? <laughs> I, I would I would say that that's not a valid argument. I mean, that requirement is there, but it's it's uh, it's not something that would be required for an officer to do for in that case. And, and and I would say, uh, you know, what 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 we've done is in twenty eight nine fourteen a, those are the elements of the offense, uh, and e is an, a requirement of the department. Um, okay. We're not going to require the officer because not only do you have to do that, but even if you start in Yuma in the morning and make it all the way around the state, by the time you're done, the sign in Yuma might be gone already. So, you know, thank you, but that that's not going to be an element. Uh, for those of our judges who think that's a tip, that wasn't meant as a tip. Uh, <laughs> all right, so the other question is going back to 28707, is there an appellate court case that we can cite to saying that 707 is not applicable to collision cases in terms of listing the speeds on the complaint. Yeah, um, and, and then the rest of it is, the argument is that it's part of the same statute. And and every time, because, you know, I, when you get somebody who says, I was cited for speeding, I wasn't speeding, I just rear-ended somebody, you know, <laughs> why don't we just make it a separate statute or at least, you know, a separate paragraph, but. Yes, I know. If if we could get our ear, you know, somehow get the ear of the legislature to, you know, make that a separate a separate subsection or something like that it would be most helpful to those of us that do deal with civil traffic. Um, but as far as an appellate court case, um, there's none that I know of because, as you know, most of our cases, um, when they get appealed, they go as LCAs to the superior court. Um, and those those cases are, are I mean, they're they're not published opinions. Um, so there's not anything that I know of particularly um, that indicates that with regard to 707. Um, but it's basically just the the plain meaning of the statute. I mean, the, that portion of the statute indicates failure to control speed. It does not indicate a specific speed. Um, so that's the holding that has always been um, given with regard to that portion of 28701A. Um, I know I've made that that distinction, um, and if people have appealed me on it, I have not been reversed on it. So um, that I, but I can't think of a specific case, or I, I don't have a specific case that I can point you to. Um, and it looks like we've had at least one judge who has had the defendant try the sign at the border defense. So um, you have some more well-versed uh, people in JP court than what we see at, in Phoenix Municipal. <laughs> Um, so let's see, uh, Judge Branham, you had your hand up for a moment. Did we answer your question or? 
It was really more back to the uh, 2914 piece. Is there any case law where we've, we've lost on those kinds of technical appeals on the on the handheld devices? Because uh, I looked for some recently and I, I didn't really see much. No, it's it's too new, um, I think, because, you know, again, and also because of the fact that most of our cases don't go up to the Court of Appeals or the Superior or the Supreme Court. Um, everything's pretty much handled at the superior court level. So uh, I don't think that we have had any legislature or any appellate decisions with regard to the cell phone law. But Mike, now that you mention it, and thank you for, for mentioning this, we uh, went back when we did this in person uh, and were able to show videos without having to worry about copyright violations. There was a Seth Meyers segment uh, where a person in, I believe it was New York State, contested uh, a um, cell phone violation claiming that it was a McDonald's uh, hash brown that he, um, he was holding <laughs> up and not a cell phone. And he lost initially and continued to appeal until he finally did win at an appellate court and ended up spending thousands of dollars to, uh, to get out of a $200 ticket. So, yeah, you know, for, for a civil traffic violation to get far enough to, to having an appellate decision being made, it almost requires a level of insanity. <laughs> right. Right. If it's purely just a civil traffic, I mean, normally our, our decisions or decisions that affect our rulings on cases usually will come with some concurrent criminal charge. Um, so it's usually, you know, like somebody got stopped for a civil traffic case and then they had, you know, a trunk full of meth. And so they end up having criminal charges and they want to get the stop thrown out, you know, um, based on on some other factors on the civil traffic factors. So we just haven't seen anything yet with regard to the cell phone, um, you know. Not, not that I'm aware of. Um, okay, and so I think the next juvenile uh, civil traffic, that's also yours, Judge Adernetto. And, and click it one more time so we can see my grandson illegally driving. There Thank you go. <laughs> so um, Judge Welty recently issued a new administrative order and the justice courts no longer have jurisdiction over the juvenile matters that are that are not civil traffic. I don't want to say criminal because they're not criminal, but um, not for juveniles. But we no longer do delinquencies or incorrigibles. But all of the limited jurisdiction courts in Maricopa County, at least, will do uh, juvenile civil traffic because th that jurisdiction has been declined. There's at least actually one county where um, the Superior Court did not decline jurisdiction. And so that Superior Court actually does do juvenile civil traffic. Uh, so, and juvenile does mean under 18. Uh, next slide. Sure. And so, how do you treat juveniles? For the most part, it's the same as an adult, except you must have a parent present unless there are unusual circumstances. There really would have to be unusual. Uh, you know, my, my parents are on vacation in Bermuda, uh, so here's my neighbor, Bob. Um, that That shouldn't do it. I mean, we need to have really unusual circumstances to not have a parent or guardian there. Uh, we do use the rules of procedure in civil traffic and voting violation. Uh, and those should be handled in court, not by the staff or by juvenile hearing officers, because arguably you may not be civil traffic hearing officers. 
Uh, and there is the statute on um, when you can waive the parent or guardian's appearance. So again, just be careful about that. Okay. All right, moving on from traffic to marijuana, in which I am very glad I don't have to deal with marijuana cases, so <laughs> I don't get that joy. Well, and you know, and these actually, um, this is a weird subsection um, because if they're under 18, it's going to go to uh, superior court, to juvenile okay. court. If they're over, if they're 21 and over, it's going to go to juvenile court. But if they're between 18 and 21, then that can get sent to justice courts. There, there's one, at least one justice court in our jurisdiction uh, that may or may not have a major university uh, where people do get cited for this who are of that right age. And so that first violation is going to be a civil penalty of no more than $100. Um, and additional violations are criminal, but that would have to be cited on the citation or have the prosecutor file a notice of prior, which isn't going to happen in a, in a civil matter, because as I indicated, our prosecutors are never going to show up for one of these. So if, if the officer recognizes Paul Julian uh, is that 19-year-old uh, marijuana habitual user, you know, he might cite him at, as a repeat offender and and then that would go to juvenile court. So if it's going to be a first violation. Okay. So let me just make sure, Judge Adarnetto, so if they're 19, they would still go to juvenile court? No, no, no. If they're between 18 and 20, uh, if they're between 18 and 21, they come to, they can go to a limited jurisdiction court. Okay. If they're, okay. If they're under 18 or 21 and over, it goes to juvenile court. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. 21 and over would go to adult court. You're right. I'm sorry. Okay. That's, okay. I just wanted to make sure. <laughs> okay. All right. All right. Um, next slide. So what gives us jurisdiction is uh, ARS section sections 22, 701, and 702. Uh, and again, those can be cited on, a, uh, on an ATTC. Uh, you can handle those. The, the traffic and boating rules apply. Uh, the law enforcement officer can um, alter the ATTC to indicate a civil violation. I think those have all been fixed by now, so they don't, they don't really have to do that. Um, you can do the civil and defaults can go to collections and a tax intercept, but does not get reported to MVD. And our, our last point is one of the interesting things about is remember while marijuana has been decriminalized in Arizona for the most part, it's still a federal crime. And so if you do have someone who's admitting to a marijuana, a civil marijuana violation, thinking, hey, it's a $50 fine, what's the big deal? Well, what's the big deal is um, that it does get, it, it may get reported to Homeland Security or to ICE, and that may have an, in, uh, an implication upon their immigration status. So, I think it is a best practice to give an immigration advisory. A lot of the uh, bond cards do have that on there. It, it's sometimes in very small print, but it, it it may be there. But I do think it's a best practice to do it. 
if you're going to do it, then you do it to everyone or you do it to no one. You don't do it to just the people you think it might apply to. You, you have to do it to everyone or to no one. Okay. And so we did uh, do a, um, a, a survey of our judges of what they thought the first violation should be as a civil offense. And uh, we came down to the average was 65 bucks. So, you know, it's it's a $65 fine. I think a lot of officers are not citing it for that reason. I mean, do they really want to run the risk that the kid asks for a hearing? And so they have to show up so that the kid will be assessed a $65 fine? Probably not. Okay. Did you want to do this one? Um, sure, I can do this one. This is fine. Um, so DDS is the Defensive Driving School or Defensive Driving Program. Um, and several years ago, uh, the Arizona legislature actually changed the law to allow commercial driver's license holders um, to be eligible for defensive driving school uh, as long as they were not driving a commercial vehicle during the incident um, and as long as the vehicle was not being used for a commercial purpose. Um, so in other words, if a person is just driving their personal vehicle, um, you know, running to the store or, or, you know, going home, running errands, things like that, um, and they happen to be a commercial driver and they get stopped for a civil traffic violation, uh, previously they were not allowed to attend defensive driving school because they were, uh, because they are a commercial driver's license holder. Um, however, now they can. Um, so the other uh, requirements for DES eligibility still apply. Um, they cannot have attended for a violation within one year, um, and that goes from the date of violation to date of violation. So you have to make sure they haven't attended the class. Um, also, uh, it's not on the slide here, but just so that you are aware, um, no one can attend defensive driving program or defensive driving school if the incident involved a serious physical injury or a fatality. Um, and also, uh, they cannot attend um, if the violation itself is not a moving violation. Um, so DDS can only be given for those violations that result in points. Uh, they can't go for something like an insurance violation um, or, um, you know, an equipment violation um, or even for driving on a suspended license. They cannot go to a defensive driving program to have that charge dismissed. Um, it has to be an eligible moving violation. Uh, the only um, exception to this is that um, they did they do allow for individuals to attend defensive driving school for a cell phone violation. Um, even though the cell phone violation is not considered a moving violation by MVD and does not result in points, um, because of the possible implications for insurance purposes, um, the legislature and MVD made the decision um, that they would allow people to go to DDP in order to have a cell phone uh, violation dismissed. Um, and so that applies to CDL holders as well. Um, now, once a CDL holder does complete the class, um, the court's responsibility is to still report that violation to MVD. Um, however, it is reported with a special code. Um, and so with that, it does show that although that charge is not dismissed, um, as would be for a regular driver, um, they, the violation cannot be used for points. It cannot be used for suspension purposes. 
um, and it cannot be used by the individual's insurance company to affect their rating. All right, and do you want to do this one, Charlie? Yeah, we do have a question, Judge Elke. Oh, sure. You must be muted. Yep. Yep. Sorry, I had to get back to mute. Yep. This was a question from a little while ago. Okay. Um, sorry. I, I was just more. I was just more curious about this. The collective opinion on something that's come up. This is. Uh, I do some pro tem work up in Payson and then uh, the East Valley Regional Veterans Court as well. But um, I've had officers come up on the scene of a single car accident, uh, usually during the winter months, where a vehicle has been involved in an accident slipped on ice, you know, black ice or whatever the case may be. And the statements given by the by the driver defendant have essentially said they were driving below the posted speed because of the weather conditions, yet they hit black ice and, uh, you know, an accident occurred. And, you know, the, I, the question, you know, the officers are often will kind of say it's kind of like a raise ipsa for them. They're like, well, if you're involved in an accident, you must have been going faster than what was reasonable and prudent under the circumstances and therefore citing them for 28701A. I'm just kind of curious if, 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 you know, what the collective thought or what your impressions or feelings about that are, um, you know, all things being equal, assuming the defendant, you know, appears to be testifying credibly and so forth. Mm -hmm. Um, there are situations where, you know, a person is cited for a single vehicle collision um, and, you know, they they are credible in their testimony that they did everything they could to control um, and something happened that caused them to lose control of the vehicle. Um, so let's, you know, for example, a mechanical malfunction. You're driving along and all of a sudden your brakes go out, your brakes fail. And, you know, somehow they're able to show that there was some sort of mechanical malfunction or brake failure or the tire blew or something like that. Um, that is a situation where the person could be found not responsible, um, even though they did, you know, it did result in the collision. It wasn't because they didn't control the speed of their vehicle or that they were, you know, not paying attention or that, you know, any of that. There's a factor that happened that essentially was a, a contributing factor or a, 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 a causation of it. Um, I also had, you know, I've had situations where um, individuals are driving and something comes out in the, you know, in front of, in the roadway in front of them and they try to avoid it as much they can. But sometimes there's a vehicle that's next to you that you really can't do anything to avoid. Um, and if if the testimony is credible that something came out into the roadway and there was nothing else that that driver could do, then that is something that they could be found not responsible for. Um, in these kind of situations that you're describing where you have a collision which occurred um, and, you know, it appears that there there is some kind of cause, um, you know, a natural cause like black ice or something like that, um, I would be looking for the testimony of the officer as to why it was that they felt that, you know, the person's speed was either greater than it should have been or something like that. Um, you know, normally there would be some sort of, uh, you know, if they said there was skid or something that showed that the person was traveling, you know, a certain um, certain miles per hour, um, that would be the type of evidence that I would think I would want to see in that situation. Um, but if I didn't hear anything, and like you said, the defendant appears to be credible in their testimony, I think that would be a good basis for a not responsible. All right. Thank you. Sure. 
Sure. And I apologize. I did see your hand up and I meant to get to you. And then when I went back, I couldn't find whose hand it was that was up. So thank you for remembering the question. Uh, Judge Ardenetto, did you want to give an opinion on that? Yeah, I, I thought you did a, a wonderful job. I, I mean, it, it might be interesting in that situation to ask the officer what would the reasonable and prudent speed have been, okay. uh, you know, and and possibly if, if the answer was, well, zero, uh, the person shouldn't have been driving on that road. Well, was the road closed? No. Uh, so, you know, I, I, I think that is one where you should be asking a lot of questions. And, and one of the situations is Judge Villa just indicated that um, I did have one where a dog at, at two o'clock in the morning, a taxi driver hit a dog. Uh, and he, the statute is almost a, a strict liability, but it's not purely strict liability because, you know, I think you can be traveling at any speed. And if a dog jumps in front of you, the dog jumps in front of you. What can you do? Uh, and so I found that person not responsible and the officer was actually quite angry about it. And not only did the taxi driver stop, but the taxi driver actually picked the dog up and took him to an emergency hospital. And the officer still cited him and was still mad that, that I found him not responsible. So. All right, Judge, did you want to do the masking? So sure. So we're going to talk about masking for a few minutes. Masking comes up on both the civil traffic and on the criminal traffic side. And it is, it's, a, it's a concept under federal law. So you'll see a reference there to 49 Code of Federal Regulation, Section 384.226. And it says the state must not mask, defer imposition of judgment, or allow an individual to enter into a diversion program that would prevent a, a, a commercial license holder, uh, prevent that conviction for any violation in any type of motor vehicle of a state or local traffic control law other than parking, vehicle weight, or vehicle defect violations from appearing on the commercial driver's license driver record whether the driver was convicted for an offense committed in the state where the driver is licensed or another state. And so what that, said, what that means in English is um, the federal government does have a vested interest in ensuring that commercial guys driving 18 wheel vehicles um, are, you know, huge weapons that are capable of killing multiple people if, if driven improperly are not out there repeatedly violating traffic laws. And so masking is the attempt by uh, a defendant or their attorney to say, you know, your honor, we've reached a plea agreement. And instead of this uh, speeding violation, um, he's going to plead responsible to a seatbelt violation. Um, that would be masking. That would be hiding the traffic violation under a lesser penalty. And so that that is something that we do need to be concerned about. If if it happens to a great extent, then our federal funding is is actually at risk. And this is something that prosecutors themselves on the criminal side might not be aware of or uh, attuned to as well. So they might not also understand why you're not accepting a plea agreement. Okay. 
And, and there are much longer classes on masking. We're, we're literally spending five minutes here on something that we can and have de uh, devoted multiple hours to. Right, Paul? Okay, so here's some scenarios. So the defendant is charged with speeding uh, 70 miles per hour in a 55 mile per hour zone. The defense counsel moves to amend to a seatbelt violation with an agreed fine of 250. If you accept and amend, have you masked the offense? I think I just kind of gave you the answer. Um, would your answer change if the officer agrees with the defendant and states he or she has no issue with dismissing the charge? Anyone? No, still didn't change anything. Thank you. It, it, it would still be masking. Um, what I would ask of the officer is, um, are you prepared uh, to uh, prove by a preponderance of the evidence today whether or not the defendant um, was speeding 70 in a 55 mile per hour zone? And if the answer is, yeah, I, I can prove that, that's why I cited him with it, and that's why I'm here today, um, then why aren't we proceeding with that? Uh, so, you know, we're, we're not going to make everyone's lives a little easier by pleading to the seatbelt violation when he did, in fact, commit the speeding violation. Any other questions or comments about that? Charlie, sorry right. I was muted, uh, but I agree with what you've said here. And I think it's a it's a serious problem we have, particularly on the border uh, where we have the major interstates going through. Uh, it it, uh, it seems like in some in the rural counties like uh, Apache County, uh, I know, has had some problems. Yeah, yeah, if you've if you've got the, the big interstate highways with with the big 18 wheelers, you're going to have this and you know, generally when someone does have have an attorney, it, it, it may very well be a CDL person. And this, you know, when you take the longer class on masking, you'll see, you know, getting those penalty, losing your CDL, even for a short amount of time is, is really painful. Mm -hmm. um, but there's a reason for that. These 18 wheelers can cause a whole lot of damage if someone who shouldn't be driving them is driving them. Okay, right. next. Okay, uh, just two points I wanted to make on that as well. Uh, in addition to it being prohibited by the federal law, um, the rules of civil traffic, specifically rule nine, also says that a judge cannot amend a charge from one charge to another violation. So when they're asking you to amend from a speeding to a seatbelt violation, that is also against the rules um, that the rules of procedure that we have. So that's what I, I let the attorneys know um, when they try to do that as well. Um, and another practice point that I've I've found, whoops, don't know what happened there. We lost the. Am I showing the rule nine? Oh, okay. You're showing it. Okay. Yes. Um, so as you see, um, let's, uh, rule 9A, a court may amend a complaint at any time before judgment if no additional or different violation is charged and if no substantial right of the defendant is prejudiced. So we can't, it, we can't change it to another, uh, to another violation. 
Um, one practice point that I've, I've discovered as well is usually the attorneys will try this in front of judges that they haven't been in front of before, um, you know, a new judge or someone that they just don't have the experience with. They will try it a couple times, but once they see that they will not be able to get away with it in your court, they won't try to do it again. But your honor, every other judge lets me do this. Well, not in this court. <laughs> All right. Do you want to do you want to share the, your PowerPoint again? Sure. Ready to go. I'll, I'll I'll also add out that uh, add that remember the officer is a witness. <inaudible> and <inaudible> is not... Um. So I somehow I lost the PowerPoint. It's not okay. showing up. <laughs> I'll share on this end. Yeah, if you can share it because. Mine is completely gone. I think because you took control. That's why. <laughs> That's okay. Yeah, it, it, uh, while, while I'm pulling that up, I was just going to add that the officer is a witness. The officer is not a party. While the officer can move for a continuance under Rule 15, that is the only thing that an officer can make a motion on. So an officer cannot enter into a plea agreement the officer doesn't have the ability to do that. Correct. Okay, so we're back. And uh, so um, this slide shows uh, how we interpret mitigation of civil traffic violations to be, because uh, not everything can be mitigated and some of the stuff can be some of the stuff can be mitigated um, or cannot be mitigated, but you can do community restitution. And so these are the, uh, for civil traffic, this is what the surcharges and fees that cannot be mitigated. Uh, and I, I mean, there's no, you're not gonna commit this to memory. So print this off and just, just keep this, or just ask the clerk quietly what can or cannot. Um, so you basically for civil traffic, everything that can't be mitigated can do community restitution for, except the $20 time payment fee. Uh, so that's pretty annoying. And then just a reminder, the community restitution rate cha will change every year. This year, the rate is $14 because the current minimum wage in Arizona went up to $13.85. So that will, and there's the link to figure out what the minimum wage is. And, and I do check it every December 31st and every January 1st to make sure what the new rate is gonna be and let everyone know what the new community restitution rate. One of the weird things about civil traffic uh, the defendant must actually agree to community restitution in, instead of a fine. Uh, that isn't the case in criminal. In criminal, you can just say, well, you're, you're going to do three, uh, 30 hours of community restitution instead of the fine. In civil traffic, they have to agree to it, so get them to agree on the record. And then the statute also, in, it do, again, doesn't do this in criminal, but it does say the court shall determine the location of the community restitution. Well, that's real problematic. Uh, so, uh, because what if I say, Paul, Mr. Julian, your community restitution shall be performed at 740 East Tacoma Drive 
I'll have a bucket and sponge ready and I'll have the lawnmower gassed up. Um, so no, you know, anyone see a problem with that? Uh, although Paul has offered to, to mow my lawn before. So thank you. Uh, so what I would recommend for the best practice, uh, for determining the location is a nonprofit in Arizona. You have identified a location. It's pretty vague. Um, and you haven't been specific enough to send them to your own church or to, you know, your own pet um, prof or your own pet charity that you may want them to to do the work at. All right, so let's talk the the last couple of years of legislative changes, and I'll turn it back to Judge Via. Sure. All right, so going back um, a couple of years, just to give you some highlights from 2021, um, 2021 involved a lot of legislative changes because it was actually two years worth of legislation um, from what was carried over for, uh, during the pandemic. Um, so the biggest change that we saw with regard to civil traffic um, is that we can no longer suspend driver's licenses for failure to pay civil traffic violations. Um, not only did that basically take the teeth out of our, um, you know, what we would be able to use to get people to pay their civil traffic cases, um, but it also retroactively took out any uh, failure to pay um, suspensions that were that were previously entered. Um, so a lot of people who had suspensions for not paying their tickets got their licenses back. Um, and so now, you know, really, we don't have that that threat hanging over people anymore that if you don't appear for court for your civil traffic case or if you don't pay your fine, um, we're going to suspend your license. We just can't do that anymore. Um, the community restitution credit was raised to the state minimum wage rounded up to the nearest dollar. Um, so it looks like we didn't update this slide. Sorry about that. Um, the current rate, as Judge Adornetto stated, is $14 for community restitution. Um, commercial vehicle equipment violations all became civil traffic violations as opposed to criminal. Um, and penalties were raised for repeated failures to yield to emergency vehicles. Um, one other, um, one other uh, change that we saw that we thought was actually going to be cited more often, but I haven't really seen very much of this, um, is the waste of finite resources. Uh, that statute was expanded. Um, so that it could be used in non-urban uh, areas or in urban areas, depending on the school on the speed limits. Um, and I, I just have not seen an increase in that. So I don't know if you have at the JP level, but um, what they intended with that um, just didn't really pan out. I would agree. Right. Oh, okay. Now, last year in 2022, um, we saw the change for the motorcycles, um, allowing uh, motorcycles to operate uh, in between uh, stopped vehicles. Um, so the, <laughs> somebody just said, worst law ever. I agree. Um, you know, I don't know what motorcycle advocates were out there, you know, working, working the legislators, but um, they passed it. And so we have followed in California, California's footsteps um, that motorcyclists can now, you know, uh, what they call um, bifurcate the lanes or, or travel within the lanes. Um, now, it does still say that the operation of the motorcycle has to be operated safely, and it's supposed to be done at a speed no greater than 15 miles per hour. Um, also does require that the vehicles on the sides of the motorcycles have to be stopped. 
Um, again, I haven't really seen very much enforcement of this um, in, in and of itself, but I have seen plenty of motorcyclists using it and abusing it because they're not following the rules. Yeah, I actually noticed uh, motorcycles doing this before the general effective date went into effect. Yes, they were. They were. Okay. All right, and then um, the upcoming bills. So far, we've only had two that were passed um, and and were signed um, that have not gone into effect yet because the legislature is still in session. Um, but uh, HB 2288 uh, now gives the right of way in roundabouts to large vehicles, and there is actually a, a definition there of what comprises a large vehicle. Um, and then also they've clarified a little bit uh, regarding the commercial equipment violations um, that they are always civil, um, even if they are cited for an out of service violation. Uh, previously, uh, even after the 2021 legislation, um, if there was an out of service order, that would still be considered to be a criminal violation. Now they're going to be civil all the time. Um, and so the changes are not in effect yet, but these ones were signed by the governor, so they will go into effect 90 days after the legislative uh, session finally ends. Eventually. Eventually. <laughs> All right, and so now time for any additional questions or just time to look at Judge Otternetto's very cute grandson who He's probably, how old is he now? Because I know this this picture has been used for a few years. He's, he's just turned three. Uh, he, he was one in the picture. So. Oh, okay. Uh, and uh, the way the way I scheduled this class was to 3.30 if we took a break. We didn't take a break, so we're actually done in, in three minutes. So we do have time, uh, three minutes worth of questions. Do we have any questions for Judge Mia? or any of our other distinguished guests. Yes, I've got a question. Uh, this okay. is Warner Orr. Uh, so rule 22 says default defendant at hearing. My question is when I don't have a defendant, does the LEO have to present any testimony at all? No, they do not. All you have to ask them is if they are ready to proceed or if they're prepared to proceed. That's all you need to ask. Perfect. And, Thank and you. Do that on, and and do that on the record. Yes. That, that is a terrific. That that was a terrific question. Thank you, Warner. Yes. Very right, good any question. other questions? Wow, we did a great job. There's no question. <laughs> Oh, okay, there's one on the chat. Uh, there's a small claims case. All right, so this this is a small claims question. What would the liability be? Um, there's, okay, and that's a great question for small claims, but that statute made it legal to do that, um, but there's still tort liability, so you still have to be careful doing what you are doing. So you can be doing something legal and still be committing a tort. Like when you are driving, you are legally driving, but when you rear end somebody, that's when you've committed a tort. So uh, you, you still would have to look at who did, who made the mistake, who did something wrong. 
Now, if if they're doing the lane splitting and one of the cars swings their door open <laughs> and the motorcyclist runs into the open door, that would be the door swinger who uh, would be responsible for the torque, not the motorcycle guy. So, but what if there's right. a bee in their car and they were trying to get it out? And actually, I have I have a story for that. Uh, when I <laughs> when I moved here from when I when I moved here from Buffalo, I had the cheapest car made in America, the Toyota or uh, the Toyota Tercel. I bought it in Buffalo, uh, so I did not need air conditioning. Moved to Arizona, needed air conditioning. So I'm driving to ASU, and and of course I've got all my windows down, and I'm rocking out, and I've got my hand out the window. And something bumps off my hand and and flies into the car. And it's like, was that black and yellow? And it's like, sure enough, there was a stunned bee in my car. Uh, so I quickly pulled over and got him out without further incident. But yeah, um, so you laugh about it, but it has happened. It does right. happen. And, and it is now 315. Your CoJet certificate is at the end of the packet. If you have any other questions, uh, send them to Judge Via or to me or to Paul Julian. Uh, but thank you all. Have a have a great weekend. Yes. Thank you, everybody. Thanks, guys. Thank Wonderful. you.